Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Forty-five-year-old Susan Tice was a social worker and single mother of four who had recently moved into a new home in downtown Toronto, Ontario, Canada on Grace Street. She was recently divorced from her husband, Fred Tice, and was having to start again with her three sons and a daughter. Before the divorce, she and Fred had moved around a lot as Fred took on different jobs in the investment industry. Susan had worked as a nurse and later earned a master's degree in social work. After the divorce, Susan moved back to Toronto. She was a beloved career woman who was known for working with disadvantaged children. On August 17, 1983, Susan had plans to attend a family function in Brampton, but when relatives couldn't reach her, her brother-in-law went to her home to check on her. That's when he discovered her deceased body in an upstairs bedroom. She had been sexually assaulted and stabbed to death. Around that time, Susan's only daughter, Christian, was at camp when she felt a strong urge to call her mother back home. A man answered the phone at their house, but before Christian could speak, he hung up. She later learned it was her uncle who had only hung up because as soon as he turned around, he saw Susan's body. Four months later, on December 20, 1983, four kilometers away on Hazelton Avenue in Toronto, in the heart of Yorkville, 22-year-old Erin Gilmore was also discovered deceased by a friend in her home. Erin worked at a store below her apartment and finished her shift around 9 o'clock. Her friend, Anthony Monk, was headed to pick her up, but he first stopped at a bank to withdraw cash. He arrived at Aaron's 20 minutes later, and as he was approaching her apartment, he saw the door slightly ajar. Anthony went upstairs and called Aaron's name, but he couldn't find her. He then noticed a shape under the duvet on her bed. When he pulled back the cover, he found Aaron's body. Just like Susan, she had been sexually assaulted and stabbed to death. But Aaron and Susan reportedly were not known to one another. Erin was the daughter of mining tycoon David Gilmore and had aspirations of becoming a fashion designer and was working in a clothing store below her apartment. In 2007, DNA linked both murders to the same suspect. When Christian Tice learned about the connection, she was disappointed that the police hadn't put it together sooner. To her, there were similarities. Susan and Erin lived alone not far from one another, and had recently moved into their homes. 
In March 2016, investigators sent out a YouTube video appealing to the public for information that would lead to the identification of a suspect. In 2019, investigators began working with Othram and performed genetic genealogy. Their research led them to five Sutherland brothers. They were able to eliminate four of the brothers, leaving one as a possible suspect. On November 25, 2022, 39 years after their murders, 61-year-old Joseph Sutherland of Moosonite was arrested and charged with two counts of first-degree murder after authorities made a final DNA match. Sutherland was living in Toronto at the time of the murders and would have been around 22 years old, the same age as Aaron. A Facebook page that appears to belong to him is filled with photos of snowy wilderness and selfies in hunting gear. Somehow, his name evaded police all these years. He was never a suspect and was never questioned by investigators. Sutherland has been living in Ontario for 39 years since the murders. At the time of his arrest, Sutherland was living in Moosonee, a small northern town near James Bay, the southernmost tip of Hudson Bay, and roughly 500 miles north of Toronto. Aaron's mother, Anna McCowan Johnson, died two years ago, but she is survived by her father, David Gilmore, and her two younger brothers, Kaylin McCowan and Sean McCowan. Both brothers were present at the police news conference, announcing the arrest on November 28, 2022. Susan's family did not attend the news conference. John Anthony Muncy was born on December 7, 1967, and went by Tony. He liked the bands ACDC and KISS, and at the age of 15, he was living in Columbus, Ohio. On the evening of October 15, 1983, Tony asked his father for bus fare to visit his new girlfriend. After leaving the house, Tony's father never saw him again. The next morning, on October 16, 1983, Miles away from Columbus in Delaware County, two men driving around looking for deer spotted several garbage bags off the side of the road. This location was on South Galena Road between Golf Course Road and Alexander Road east of the bridge. When the men took a closer look, they noticed an elbow sticking out of one of the bags. Investigators determined that the remains belonged to Tony. He had been kidnapped and stabbed to death. With no blood left in Tony's body, it led investigators to believe that Tony was killed elsewhere and dumped in the rural area. Meanwhile, Tony's mother, Gladys Muncy, was growing increasingly concerned that Tony had not made it home. She initially assumed he had stayed the night at a friend's house, as he often did, but it was starting to become late and he was nowhere to be found. Finally, at 7 p.m., she called the police to report Tony missing after a radio broadcast said an unidentifiable young boy's body was found. She soon heard the news that no mother should ever hear. Her little boy had been murdered. His girlfriend at the time was interviewed and said she hadn't seen him and didn't even know he had plans to come by. One of his classmates claimed to have seen him at York Plaza and that the two had a conversation but this was considered unreliable since no one else in the area spotted him. The initial investigation into the murder lasted several years but stalled 
because blood samples at the time could only determine blood types. There were two main suspects at the time. The first was 18-year-old Timothy Edward Hall. Just two months after Tony was murdered, Hall was sent to prison for murdering a blind man. Hall suffered from schizophrenia, and in prison, he often talked to a person named John. This raised suspicion among investigators who attempted to test blood found at the crime scene. However, the department never released those results. The second suspect was William Wickline Jr., who was considered one of the state's most dangerous criminals. He was sent to prison for murdering two people and disposing of them in garbage bags around the city, similar to how Tony was killed. His blood was never tested, so he remained a suspect for years. Wickline would end up being executed for those two murders in Ohio in 2004. Police reopened this case in 2010 and quietly kept working on it. In 2018, they asked for the help of Parabon Nanolabs. They narrowed down the pool of suspects to one family with three brothers. Two of the siblings were quickly ruled out, leaving them with their prime suspect, Daniel Allen Anderson. Of course, like a lot of the murderers I cover on my channel, Anderson died in 2013 before justice could be served. He was only 30 years old at the time of the horrific murder. He had ties to the area and a violent criminal past, including pandering obscenity, endangering children, and compelling prostitution. While investigators were disappointed about not being able to put him in handcuffs, they were at least happy to provide the family with answers after all these years. George Seitz was born on December 12, 1894, and went by his middle name, Clarence. On December 10, 1976, 81-year-old Clarence left his home on 161st Street to walk to get a haircut at a barber shop in Queens, New York, named Haircutters, run by Martin Mata and his brother. But Clarence never returned home and was eventually reported missing. He was a World War I veteran with PTSD, which caused him to carry around a large amount of cash while strolling through the neighborhood. With no leads, the case went cold for the next 43 years. That is, until 2019, when an unidentified woman in her 50s informed the police that as a young girl, she witnessed her mother's boyfriend dismember and bury a body in their backyard. The police went to the home where she had lived at the time at 115th Street, near Jamaica Avenue in Richmond Hill, Queens. They used dogs to scour the property, broke up a concrete slab, and found a human pelvis and partial torso. But detectives were unable to identify who the remains officially belonged to. Using DNA from the remains, they were able to generate a genetic profile. Two years later, the NYPD and the DA's office sought the help of Othram's lab and worked together using genetic genealogy. They were then able to positively identify the victim as George Charles Seitz. Investigators also identified the man she witnessed desecrating the remains as Martin Mata, the owner of the barbershop Clarence went to the last day he was seen alive. The barbershop was located only a few blocks from his home in the Jamaica neighborhood in Queens. 75-year-old Mata was arrested and then indicted by a grand jury in November 2021, 45 years after the heinous crime. 
he had robbed Clarence of $8,000 and then stabbed him to death. This was the first time a city prosecutor used forensic genetic genealogy in a homicide case. Mata was initially charged with second-degree murder and later reached a deal and pleaded guilty to manslaughter in November 2022 and was sentenced to 20 years in prison. At the age of 17, Shamar William Washington was living in Pennsylvania. On January 7, 2001, Shamar was reported missing after family and friends hadn't heard from him for several days. A week later, on January 13, his frozen remains were found by hunters down an embankment off Orchard Drive in rural Hemlock Township, Pennsylvania. Authorities believe Shamar was murdered in the woods in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, and later transported to the wooded area in Hemlock Township. He had been beaten, shot, and stabbed to death. However, with no solid evidence to arrest any persons of interest, the case would go cold. In February 2022, 21 years later, detectives met with the ex-girlfriend of one of their original suspects, Brian Quinn, who said she received a note from him during a prison visit in which he allegedly confessed to the murder. In the letter, he referred to the individual as Casper, which was a known nickname of Shamar. Quinn has a long arrest record in Lycoming County, consisting of terroristic threats, arson, burglary, and aggravated assault. In the letter, Quinn said that he and another male had been with Casper and the other male went psycho. She stated she could not recall the specifics of the killing, but it was gruesome, and the gun was discarded in the Rock Run area of northern Lycoming County. She told police she swallowed the note before leaving the prison, and after receiving the information, it has weighed heavy on her for years. On March 10, 2022, 44-year-old Brian Quinn was arrested in New Jersey and charged with Shamar's murder. But after his arrest, it was revealed that Quinn had been a suspect in the early initial investigation. According to an arrest affidavit, he allegedly confessed to five different people over the years. Soon after the brutal killing, Quinn began discussing his alleged crime with friends and cellmates. One friend told police in March 2001 that Quinn, 24 at the time of the murder, allegedly asked to borrow his pickup truck to move a body. A friend and one-time cellmate of Quinn told investigators in a 2003 interview he might do life in prison for killing a man with whom he had arranged a meeting to purchase drugs in the Newberry section of Williamsport. Quinn allegedly told the friend that he and another male were getting high in the apartment of the male's girlfriend in Newberry Estates and called Shamar for more drugs. The narrative he told was that Shamar pulled out a gun as they attempted a robbery. They wrestled it away and shot and stabbed him, but he wouldn't die, so they stabbed him with an ice pick. Quinn himself was stabbed three times as he held down the victim. In April 2001, Quinn allegedly told detectives he bought crack from Shamar and acknowledged barring a friend's truck and they moved the body to either Pine Creek or Jersey Shore and later used the pickup to transport it to the Bloomsburg area. Police said they spoke to three other witnesses, a female with whom Quinn had stayed in 2002 and 2003, 
and two men with whom Quinn had shared prison cells, who claimed Quinn told them he had killed Shamar. Why it took investigators two decades to arrest Shamar's murderer is still a mystery, but now that Quinn is in custody, maybe the family can finally get some closure for their loved one after all these years. At the age of 19, Cheryl Thompson lived at 8312 Wooster Pike in Cincinnati, Ohio, and was a freshman at the University of Cincinnati to become a nurse. In March of 1978, Cheryl was spending her spring break at her parents' house. On Friday, March 24th, she and her younger brother Dan ate TV dinners together. Then, at around 10.30 p.m., Cheryl had plans to go to the Gatsby's Disco, a club outside of Cincinnati in an area called Oakley. As she left the house, she said goodbye to Dan and set off to meet her boyfriend at the disco club, but never arrived. Her boyfriend started searching for her immediately and even spotted a man driving away from the club in her car around 2 a.m., the boyfriend gave chase, but couldn't keep up and lost the car near Hyde Park Plaza. Her family quickly reported her missing. Tragically, two weeks later, her body was discovered by a state game warden checking fishermen's licenses on the banks of the Little Miami River on East Kemper Road in Loveland. She had been sexually assaulted, beaten, and strangled to death, and most of her clothing was missing, though she was still wearing socks, shoes, and some jewelry. DNA was collected and kept at the Hamilton County Coroner's Office, awaiting advancements in technology. Her date of death isn't clear because although she had been missing for two weeks, the coroner estimated she'd been outside decomposing for a few days. Unfortunately, the case would go unsolved for the next 42 years. In 2012, they were able to use the DNA from evidence to produce a partial DNA profile, but no matches were found in state and federal databases. Investigators had already decided to upload the partial DNA profile to a genealogy database when they received some exciting news. As the coroner's office was preparing to move to a new building, they discovered DNA evidence in Cheryl's case. Ten years later, a genetic genealogist would use the DNA and successfully find a match. The suspect was a member of the Howell family and had been charged with abduction in 1983, but then died in a car crash in 1985. His relatives provided DNA samples, excluding them as the suspect, ultimately leading investigators to Ralph Howell. In that 1983 charge, Howell was arrested after offering a woman a ride home. Once in the vehicle, he put a rope around her neck, began strangling her, and then told her he wanted to have sex with her. The woman was able to fight off Howell and escape. Howell was exhumed, and DNA was collected from his jawbone to officially identify him as Cheryl's killer. He was posthumously indicted with one count of rape and one count of aggravated murder. Authorities believe that Howell is a serial killer responsible for three other unsolved murders of young women between 1976 and 1978 that have similar facts and circumstances. 17-year-old Charmaine Stalla, 18-year-old Nancy Ann Theobald, and 24-year-old Victoria Hincher. Unfortunately, there is no DNA from those murders to test with Howells. In fact, during the two-and-a-half-year period from the late 70s to early 80s in the Cincinnati region, 
16 females ranging in age from 12 to 27, including Cheryl, were murdered, and several of those cases still remain unsolved. Although Cheryl's parents have since died, she has two brothers who finally learned what happened to their sister. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.